1: 18
2: plus. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast editor, and I'm joined, as usual, by my partner in banter, the amazing, the one and only, the talented, THR's chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. What's up, Dan?
0: Oh, you know, we're all just chilling and taking a week off after the upfronts, right? Uh, you know, just doing nothing.
2: Yeah, I mean, the news cycle has thankfully slowed down a little bit uh, heading into the Memorial Day holiday. The official broadcast TV season is over. And the week of news has kind of slowed a little bit, so if we're looking at this week's headlines, there's not a whole lot, and it's kind of nice. Ellen DeGeneres has signed a new three-year deal to remain at the host of her daytime favorite, HBO has renewed Gentleman Jack. And Anna Kendrick is going to star in a comedic anthology from Paul Feig for Warner Media's upcoming streaming service. Other than that, it's been a nice respite from all the big news that we've had over the last couple weeks. And a nice point for all of us to catch our breath before summer events like TCA, Comic-Con, and ATX.
0: Ooh, that feels like a transition to me, Leslie.
2: It certainly is. In case you missed our announcement on Twitter this week, Dan and I are taking TV's top five on the road for a special live edition that we'll be doing June 6th at the amazing ATX Television Festival in Austin.
0: That is the first Thursday of ATX, which is an awesome celebration of all things television. We will be taking the stage at the SFA Intercontinental in Austin. We would love to see you there because we are certainly going to make Sure, that we take some audience questions, that we bring on some special guests, TBD, and that we just celebrate the glory that is TV in front of people who we hope are our fans.
2: Hopefully and if you haven't checked us out yet and you're just figuring out what ATX is and figuring out what our podcast is, let me just tell you from covering that festival for the past couple of years, it is the perfect event if you're a fan of television and a fan of how it gets made and meeting the people who are behind a lot of it. So you've got great access to showrunners and, and talent. Piso. Yes, and queso. It's a really smart festival, and it's perfect for our audience, I think.
0: And we will be telling you more about that also still next week. And if you follow us on Twitter, we will probably be repeating it over and over and over again because the event will be more fun if people are in attendance.
2: Definitely. As Dan mentioned, there will be a QA and a segment that we'll be doing with the audience. We are in talks with some really smart showrunners and possibly some executives to join us. It'll be a fun event and something I'm already completely terrified of doing.
0: And I'm looking forward Forward to it.
2: That's good. There will be Red Bull, I think. Well, with all that out of the way, let's get down to this week's top five.
0: Number one.
2: Leading off this week, before we get into the weeds of just how Game of Thrones ended, let's talk about the big picture and how the big HBO hit signed off in the larger sense of things. The May 19th series finale drew nearly 20 million viewers when counting replays and early streaming returns. Dan, that's enough to make it HBO's most watched episode of television ever. That's better than The Sopranos. It's better than any of the other Game of Thrones episodes that preceded it. It's a big one. It is, and it's important
0: to obviously keep in mind that HBO subscriber numbers are significantly higher now than they were back then. But HBO has also been kind of adding up the audience with each passing week, including all of the other various ways that they can register how many people are watching it. And I believe the number that they've been giving most recently is that the average viewership in some way or another of every episode has been in the 44 million viewers per week range. That's very impressive by today's TV standards, even for a jaded, hardened critic like myself. That is a lot of people.
2: Yeah. And more importantly, it felt like one of those episodes of television that must be seen live, that if you flipped open Twitter, it was the only thing that people were talking about. It was a communal experience. And those really just don't exist in this peak TV landscape anymore. I feel
0: like they probably do exist, is the stupid thing. Not at this level. Exactly. That's sort of the difference, because it's funny, because all of our Twitter bubbles are, of course, our Twitter bubbles. And so there are often the circumstances in which I feel like everybody on my Twitter feed is talking about something that then draws 2.5 million viewers. And it's like, okay,
2: Even my Dodger Twitter thread was all Game of (laughs) Thrones. I'll put it to you that way.
0: But no, this was something where it wasn't just my Twitter feed, where it actually was everybody talking about this show in the way that everybody talks about anything that isn't the Super Bowl. I mean, the Super Bowl is still the only exception, I think, for what is bigger and more all-encompassing than Game of Thrones was for the past six weeks.
2: Yeah. And beyond that, I mean, the episode really was pretty divisive, I would think. I mean, there was a story uh, this week that someone in Seattle paid to have a banner flying around Seattle saying, someone please rewrite season eight of Game of Thrones. And that's on top of the fan petition that drew more than a million signatures. In a larger sense, with something this divisive, Dan, I think the next question becomes, will the reaction to this finale hurt Game of Thrones Emmy chances? I mean, it's already won three Best Drama trophies. So when you look at the competition, only This Is Us from last year's Best Drama nominees is returning or is eligible. Stranger Things is not back until July. Handmaid's Tale ducked out of the race and was pushed back to June. What do you think, Dan?
0: I think that definitely people ran scurrying because they were afraid of Game of Thrones being inevitable. And I don't know that they were wrong to do so, but I think it also became a self-fulfilling prophecy. They created the inevitability where ultimately the product on the screen did not necessarily reward that. I think that when it comes to Emmys, I really don't think they need to worry. This is again, this is me speaking from my point of Twitter bubbledom. In my Twitter bubble, I would say that I have noticed that the people who actually make TV who I follow are more impressed with the show because their perspective is from one of they know what it takes to make even a half hour comedy and so they see a show with the scope of game of thrones and they know the number of people who had to be all on the same page to make that happen and they're able to appreciate it i don't want to say on a higher level just on a different level where they go okay this is something unprecedented for tv it should be rewarded and i don't think that the emmy voters will penalize the show as much for mixed reactions. My own real question, honestly, is if you'd asked me six weeks ago, I would have said Game of Thrones was a 100% lock for the TCA Program of the Year Award. So this is a Critics Award, Critics... Choosing the program of the year.
2: And if there's anyone who knows the most about the TCA, it's you serving also as president of the critics organization.
0: Indeed. When we give our program of the year award this year, it will effectively be the last act of my presidency. I will drop the mic, walk off the stage and be done with that. And that will be fine. I had really assumed for sure it was going to be Game of Thrones. And now I wonder what the other alternatives are.
2: In a larger sense, too, who else do you think could sneak into the best drama race? It's hard to say. I, like, for um, example, and, Or for the TCA Award. On the
0: best drama front, I think there will definitely be the shows that are in the conversation, but still just probably aren't going to be able to win. So something like Pose, I suspect Pose will probably be able to get a nomination at this point. I suspect Better Call Saul will be in the race. I don't expect it will win. I suspect Ozark will be in the race, which I think is ridiculous, but I don't worry that it will win. I don't know that there's anything really for the Emmy can beat it. I think for the TCA award, there are a lot of things that critics simply like more, whether it's the aforementioned Pose, which I think does have a kind of cultural impact on a big scale that's important, or something more recent like Fleabag, which has come as close to universal acclaim as anything. Something like Better Things is another show that close to universal acclaim and, you know, again, impact that goes beyond just it's a half hour comedy type thing. So I think that there are, especially for Critics Awards, other contenders, And I will be interested to see how those votes play out, because if you'd asked me, I probably could have told you what the TCA program of the year was the past like five or six years straight, just guessing because I can get a feel for what we like and what has been significant this year. I think it has become wide open in a way that it wasn't before. I mean, maybe something even like Veep, which also ended this year, also has that kind of sentimental value. But had a finale that was significantly more beloved, I would say. So we'll see. I really, frankly, like the fact that it's not a sure thing. That that makes me much happier than when it was inevitability. So this is not me criticizing anything. It's me saying, hey, look, this is fun. Now I don't know. So I'm pleased with that.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, THR did a morning consult poll to find out how divisive the Game of Thrones finale really was. And of the the more than 2,000 surveyed, 26% of viewers who watched the episode replied that they liked the finale, quote, a lot. 37% liked it, some. 24% didn't really like it. And 10% didn't like it at all. So, I mean, make of that what you will. It's still, at least according to my Twitter threads, pretty divisive.
0: It's definitely divisive. But again, we spend so much time talking about whoever this person was who flew an airplane in Seattle or the million people plus who signed a petition, I do think that is a vocal minority. And if you look at an audience of 44 million viewers, and probably it's significantly more than that, because as we always say, Game of Thrones is the most pirated show on TV. Also, I think it, it really is the smallest portion of fandom that was actually actively angry about it. Some people have ambivalent reactions, but at the end of the day, most people People process ambivalence as positive, honestly. They, you know, if if someone comes away from a show that they watched for seven years and it's not the best finale in the world, they still feel pretty good about it and they still feel pretty warm about it. It's only the small kernel of people who walk away actually actively angry and think that HBO is going to give them a refund or something. So I think that probably we overblow the quote unquote hatred that the finale had. I think if you looked at people in general, Most people would probably tell you they were fine with the finale.
2: The reaction that I heard from my circle of friends is all kind of the same thing, where it was just kind of meh, (laughs) was the immediate reaction. It wasn't like, oh, my God, that was such a, oh, like, here's, let's talk about 18,000 things that happened in that episode. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It was just kind of. Okay.
0: Now, one person who definitely has probably had to see slash listen slash process everything that has been responded to in that show is Casey Bloys at HBO, HBO's entertainment president. And you had a conversation with him, which I would describe, at least from a distance looking at it, seemed a little bit like pulling teeth at certain points. Does that sound like a fair assessment?
2: I think it's a fair. I mean, (laughs) look, Casey and I have a good relationship and he's always as forthcoming as he possibly can be, but this wasn't a case where he could be. I asked him a lot of questions about the creative and the conversations between Game of Thrones creators Benioff and Weiss and how they achieved more of the why they came to land the ship the way that they did and he deferred those questions to them which is, you know, easier said than done considering the creators aren't doing any press but yeah, I mean, I asked him about the state of the franchise and the criticisms around the show and, you know, he reiterated Tim Goodman's point, which is This is a big ship to land, and they landed it as best they could, and there's no pleasing everyone. And I think he was prepared for some of that backlash. But at the same time, it's still, look at these numbers. This is something to be extremely proud of. And, you know, I asked him if there was any consideration to going on beyond these handful of final season episodes, if there was a conversation about not doing this in such an abbreviated fashion, because one of the biggest criticisms, as far as I can tell, is that it felt really compressed. And he said, not at all. This was always the plan. Benioff and Weiss had this plan, wrapping it in these final 15 episodes over the past two seasons, and they stuck to it. And there was never a conversation about bringing in different showrunners. He didn't think that the actors would respond to that or continue on without Benioff and Weiss at the helm. And then I asked him about spinoffs, because, you know, if you've seen the finale and you're an Arya Stark fan like myself, there's one natural ending that you hope maybe would continue in a new chapter. And he said, absolutely not. So no spinoffs for the time being. Right now, the the state of the franchise is they're shooting the pilot starring Naomi Watts in the summer. If that works out well, maybe it'll be on in a year or two. He was reluctant to provide a date. We've seen what happens when people date things. Look at Star Trek and how many times Discovery was pushed back. I think it was three or four times. And beyond that, there's two other prequel scripts that are in development. He wouldn't say which ones. We know the Brian Cogman one is not happening anymore, but it's a wait and see. And he's open into, you know if the pilot comes out well and they pick that up, Maybe they'll revisit doing these other two scripts and having, you know, more than one show. It's a wait and see, basically, is what the big takeaway is from that interview.
0: I definitely thought that his answer about a potential ARIA spin-off was as close to decisive as you got out of him. He did not say, Oh, it's not a thing we're doing right now. Oh, we'll <laughs> we'll circle back in five years when we clearly need the ratings and if Maisie Williams happens to be available. But I believe he even repeated no several times. <laughs> Did it sound like he was holding anything back or did it sound like that was where?
2: It sounded pretty definitive. And if you you know follow Maisie Williams on social media, you can see that she's pretty much done with acting, at least for now. That's been my impression anyway.
0: I just think at this exact moment, there's no practical reason for anyone other than fans to want that. Like if you're Maisie Williams, you'd like to see what else life happens to hold for you. If you're HBO, you know what all of the stars of the show got paid this year. And so you don't necessarily want to bring any of them back at the established pay structure that they've gotten the past two years. So waiting a few years seems like a really reasonable thing to do.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Number two.
2: Well, speaking of divisive, let's dive right into how what are you saying
0: about what are you saying about our next guest leslie
2: i'm saying the game of thrones series finale was divisive and to talk about why it was divisive we're going to welcome thr's westeros expert and friend of the king josh wiggler welcome josh
1: thank you everyone can agree that i am the worst so nothing (laughs) divisive about me i was going
0: to say exactly the opposite josh
2: (laughs) Josh, you've written hundreds of stories in the past couple of months all about Game of Thrones for THR. How are you feeling now that it's over?
1: I am ready for a nap is the short answer. And the other short answer is ask me again in 10 years. Once I am through the uh, subsequent Game of Thrones spinoffs that I'm sure I will write hundreds of articles more about.
0: Well, okay. so we talked on series regular. I believe we recorded on Monday our kind of immediate reactions. And the thing I've been telling everybody is that I feel like we're going to have different reactions to this as we get days away, weeks away, months away. Are you feeling any differently about the finale and about the final season four days later? Like, has it sat with you at all?
1: Yeah, it's it's sat with me. And and I do think that my my general opinion about the finale is is about the same as where it was when you and I spoke the other day, Dan, which is I thought it was fine. I, th- I thought that there were there were moments from the finale that were truly amazing and some visuals, some really striking images that were just spectacular and some pieces of acting that were among the best we saw in the entire series. You know, I delivered my, my official rankings of every episode in Game of Thrones history to THR a couple of days ago and I ranked the finale relatively high. You know, there's 73 episodes in the whole show. I put it at 17, which I think is a lot higher than maybe some People would have it based on the divisive reaction that you're hearing from people, and I think that most of my issues, as they had been all season long, stemmed with some really rushed writing decisions and storytelling decisions, uh, and the execution of those storytelling decisions, rather than where a lot of these story decisions landed. I'm fine with the landing, and it's 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 not the destination that I take much issue with. It's it's a lot of the journey of the final season, but I I, I can look past a lot of that stuff, and those are. Major issues that I have, but the the pieces about Game of Thrones that I love so much, that stuff didn't really change. And a lot of that, I, I guess, what what has sat with me is the solidification that for me, the enjoyment of this show is so much watching these actors bring these characters to life, hearing Ramin Jawadi's score underneath it all, seeing these incredible set pieces, and just living in Westeros. And on that front, I, I felt mostly satisfied by the episode. But it's it's not an episode that I I'm going to be thrilled to revisit anytime soon i i will be very happy to stop thinking about it in a few days and so take from that what you will
2: so bran stark what are your thoughts on it? i mean that was the to me that was really surprising i don't think anyone could have could have expected that to be the ultimate end game for game of thrones
1: Yeah, it it was a surprise. And and I think that there's something to be said about the idea that it was brought up throughout the series. There are moments where some of these kings or would-be rulers are getting lessons in in how to lead and and what's the right path. And there's a a fairly memorable scene in season four when Tywin Lannister speaks to to Tommen, uh, who's just become king after his brother Joffrey has died. And Tywin is trying to walk him through the lessons of what it means to be a good king and the most important quality in a king being wisdom. Maybe that's an early tip-off that the the quote-unquote wisest person in Westeros, the three-eyed raven, the keeper of all the knowledge, the keeper of all the secrets is going to be the the best choice to to rule the realm. On paper, I get it. I think it's going to be great if, and, and please hopefully when George R.R. R. Martin releases the final two books in A Song of Ice and Fire, I'm sure that this story development is ripped straight from his playbook. I I think it doesn't land terribly well on the show because I think that the show just didn't do a great job of investing us in that particular journey and when Tyrion gets to the moment where he's talking about stories unite us and who has a better story than Bran the Broken it it falls a little flat for a lot of people because he's saying this in front of Arya Stark, he's saying this in front of Sansa Stark who are are two of the most impactful characters and some of the best performances in the entire series from Macy Williams and and Sophie Turner so it, it comes a little out of nowhere and it doesn't land especially well, I think more a fault of how the show adapted the brand storyline than whatever George R. R. Martin has planned for the character. I think it might be a lot more satisfying if those books ever do come out.
0: We talked a little bit in the earlier segment about kind of the impression that we have gotten about fan reaction from within our particular bubbles. And and your bubble on Twitter and elsewhere has obviously been shaped to some degree by your reputation as our Game of Thrones resident guru. Have you felt as if you've seen more anger from the fans than our general perception is, less? And do people feel as if you're kind of betraying the trust by having had quibbles this season?
1: No, I have found myself to be one of the more measured perspectives (laughs) on the final season of Game of Thrones, if I'm being honest, of the people that I've seen. I've I've seen a lot of people take it very, very personally. I've seen a lot of people feel, you know, really personally hurt and aggrieved by some of the decisions that were made in uh, the final season of of Game of Thrones. And I think for me, it was around episode four, I, I felt something a little bit wobbly around the long night. And the rushed quality of the resolution to the White Walker storyline. That was the first moment that really made me stand up and take notice that, oh wow, this is going fast. And then I think it was the next episode, The Last of the Starks, which is one of my least favorite episodes in Game of Thrones. We we talked about this, Dan, in our Before the Storm columns, about how frustrating it was to lose Rhaegal in the way that we lost Rhaegal and to lose Masande the way we lose Missandei. And it's the episode with the coffee cup, so the seams are really showing in that one. That was the moment where I I started to make peace with the fact that if Game of Thrones, if there were ever, ever any illusions that Game of Thrones was going to end perfectly, which was a, a high, high bar impossible to clear, even with the highest flying dragon, those illusions were shattered for me. And so I, I had made my peace a couple of weeks earlier that this final season was going to be coming in for a pretty hard landing. And at that moment, I was able to kind of emotionally pivot away from expecting too much. Uh, so I, I think that I was able to come away on the other side of this as feeling like mostly just fine about it and appreciate the things that i like about the show and the people who who listen to me or or read my my articles and have been uh doing so for the past little while i've actually found them to be more personally aggrieved by the show than myself personally so that's been my reaction to to my little my little game of thrones bubble
2: when when you look at back at the series finale, I mean, you did these this amazing final path series before the final season started and you had a bunch of predictions. When you look back at, at your predictions and how the final season ended, what were you most surprised by?
1: Uh what was I most surprised by? I think I'm surprised that uh that Jon Snow survives. I I think that that was a shock to me. I I would have walked into the to the final season thinking that that would have been the likeliest outcome for almost any character is is Jon Snow's death, considering he had already died before and there was so much energy behind his Targaryen destiny. And how much did that ultimately matter in the end is up to some measure of debate. But things, things really started to take a turn for him as well around that midpoint of the final season, I think, is where a lot of expectations around that character seemed to, you know, it, it required people to maybe start shifting their expectations about uh, Jon Snow when he's not the person who gets to have the killing blow against the Night King, that maybe this isn't going to have sort of that traditional hero's arc that some people were expecting, myself included, and probably foolishly so, considering this is Game of Thrones. This is the, the series that executed its main character in the very first season with one episode still to go. So to expect that Game of Thrones was going to have Jon Snow have some sort of exciting, sacrificial... Uh, gives his life for the realm type of story was probably expecting the wrong thing though in its own way Game of Thrones delivers a version of that he just gets to survive it so I think that that was my my biggest surprise I was very happy to be right about a couple of things I was very happy to be right that Tormund Giants Bane was the safest character on the board and was safe as of episode four I would have been very sad to lose that man uh, I was happy that Sansa Stark ends as queen in the North that's a very happy ending for her I was happy that I was that I was very wrong about Arya Stark I really thought we were going to lose her I thought that she would be the most agreeably difficult character to lose that everybody loves that character so much and if Game of Thrones really wanted to twist the knife they would they would, uh, they would would do so by executing that character and instead they gave her a really happy ending and I'm, I'm thrilled
2: about that I would have flipped so the table it, if they killed Arya yeah I, th-
1: I think so I think so and I, I think that we got our collective table flipping in by Daenerys flipping I think that that ended up being the gut punch that I was I I was expecting a gut punch and I wasn't expecting it to be the uh the quote-unquote mad queen turn I think was a surprise for a lot of people yeah
2: and you know Josh you got a nice shout out on Twitter from the king of the six kingdoms Isaac Hempstead Wright who wrote an incredible guest column for THR can you talk us a little bit about your big takeaways from what Isaac wrote for us
1: I loved that column I thought it was I thought it was really really exceptionally written Isaac has been a great uh, great person to talk to over the past few years has always had such great insight into the making of Game of Thrones and the storytelling of Game of Thrones and even when the series has delivered us with some twists that have taken us by surprise sometimes for better sometimes for worse I always find that he has a compelling take on the matter and uh, this was no different you know he talked about his journey growing up on Game of Thrones the feeling of being like the Beatles at the height of Beatlemania at certain points when he had been stepping outside during filming on the final season and how emotional it was to wrap the series. All of that's really great, sort of the journeyman quality of of what he wrote. But as far as the as the ending of the show, obviously a lot of people find it controversial that that Bran is the one who winds up on you know whatever throne. I don't think it's iron anymore. Uh, whatever chair he is ruling from at the end of the day, I feel like he he did a really great job of articulating why his character and the type of character that he played was the right person for our modern moment as somebody who is who is still, who's considered, who, who sits and contemplates and actually chews on a thought before speaking about his opinion just shooting from the hip like so many of the leaders on Game of Thrones and in the world outside of it. I thought that he presented a really compelling case for why that is um, an appropriate person to, to be in charge of the six kingdoms, not seven, by the end of this series. So if you haven't read it yet, I, I really recommend you do. He, he did a great job of articulating his interpretation of the end of Game of Thrones.
2: Well, Josh, thank you. That's everything that we got for this segment. Um, for more on Josh and Dan's deep dive into the episode, be sure to check out this week's episode of Series Regular. And to read Isaac's guest column, go to thr.com slash Game of Thrones. Thanks, Josh, for joining us.
1: Thanks, guys. Number three.
2: Batting third this week, let's talk about another recent series finale, The Big Bang Theory. The Chuck Lorre comedy signed off after 12 seasons, ending its run as TV's number one scripted comedy with an impressive 18.5 million same-day viewers and growing to more than 20 million with delayed viewing returns. You know, we talk about Game of Thrones a lot and how big those numbers were, but here's a broadcast show that pulled in those kind of numbers same-day without the aid of DVR and streaming, all that stuff still hasn't really been counted in when you're looking at Live 7s, but it's a massive hit. What did you think of the finale?
0: I thought it was a good, satisfying finale that I had significantly lower expectations for and therefore that met my expectations probably roughly on their level. And I think that probably has been the kind of thing that Big Bang Theory has been good at for years. In my review of the finale, at THR, I talked about the journey that the show has gone on and how awful the early episodes, really the early, possibly season or two, were, and kind of how the show settled into being a much better show as it went along, in large part because of the actresses in the show who were all given a good deal more agency than they had in the beginning, where you know it was really kind of Kaylee Cuoco playing a blow-up doll who lived across the hall from two nerds, and the show went a different direction. And Kaylee Cuoco, Melissa Rauch, Maya Bialik, they all really elevated the show and the finale acknowledged all of their contributions. And I thought that the final emotional scene of Shelton at the Nobel Prize ceremony, it did what it was supposed to do. It made me emotional about the journey that the characters went on and made me feel as if they'd all been in this together, such as it were. In all honesty, the closing scene of young Sheldon, which was not, of course, really meant as a Big Bang Theory sort of capper or anything, did a beautiful job of tying up Big Bang Theory. The final scene of Young Sheldon featured young versions of all of the characters kind of joined together in this emotional moment that Young Sheldon was having. I thought it was really satisfying. So again, Young Sheldon, better show than you think it is. Yeah, so I liked it. You're actually a big fan of this show. This is a show that you've liked. Have you liked it the whole time? Did you like it in the early seasons too?
2: I've been watching it since day one, but much to your point, it really started to feel like more of a cohesive show when it added people like Maya Bialik and Melissa Roush and exploring some greater stories and expanding its scope from just being, hey, these two guys are nerds and they don't really know how to talk to women, where they legitimately had a character on the show, Raj, who could not talk to women. And, you know, I was on set for that finale when Kunal Nair's character could finally speak to women without the aid of alcohol. And it was a really special moment. And I think that's one of the things that this show has done really well throughout the years is it kind of morphed from what it was in those early days, like to your point, the blow up doll and two guys across the hall into dealing with more. It became a family comedy at the end. When you look at it, two of the central couples were married. One of them had children. And the finale, as it ended, you know, you've got Penny and Leonard expecting, which, you know, we can get into that as well. There's been a little bit of a backlash around that. But, you know, for me, as someone who's been with the show for 12 seasons, it was really satisfying. And, you know, we saw Sheldon regress a little bit in terms of his social behaviors, but then to realize what his friends meant to him and to do it on a stage of accepting the Nobel, it really drove home what this show was about and how that character progressed and I was very satisfied with how it ended. I thought it was great.
0: That has always actually been the thing that I haven't liked about Young Sheldon, which I will continue to say, better show than you think it is. It's kind of undone a lot of the work that Sheldon has had to do on Big Bang Theory to become a better friend and loved one to people because he's had to go through the exact same things with his family on Young Sheldon. And so it's felt like, okay, why does he keep having to learn the same lessons over and over again? Because he
2: still had to learn them over and over again in the series finale.
0: Yeah, and I think that that was part of the point they tried to make in the series finale is even if Sheldon has spent all of these years learning to appreciate his friends, he still sometimes has his own actual instincts and they haven't necessarily changed. Uh, sure, let's let's talk a little bit about the Leonard and Penny pregnancy because some people are very unhappy. My friend uh, Catherine at Vulture wrote a very angry article about how it basically... In order to create a cap to the series, they undid what was one of the principal defining characteristics of Penny for these past few seasons is that she did not want to be a mother. And there she was. And after a two month break in the action, not only was she pregnant, but she seemed entirely happy with it. And I agree. It did make a leap in the character that was in no way defended or reinforced by the series. And it really cheapened her agency. Because I can fully accept she would have at some point in those two months come to decide that she wanted to have that baby. By all means, that happens. It's not unrealistic. There's just legwork that you have to do that the show made no effort at all to do. They just skipped right over it. And I think that did the character a disservice.
2: Right. And, you know, look, Big Bang Theory has never been a show that has really arced out its trajectories for any of its characters it's you know i've talked to the producers so many times over the years and they all say the same thing they watch the run-throughs they watch the table reads and they follow where they think the characters are telling them where the performances are telling them to go and as for penny i mean we saw over the last couple of seasons leonard really wanting to be a father and penny really just not interested in that and that's totally fair and to your point the two-month time jump that happened in the middle of the series finale i mean look it was a two-part episode of course there's we find out that that Sheldon and Amy win, and then there's a time jump, and you see them accepting it. So it makes sense on that level. But yeah, I think you're right. You know, they did skip over what that conversation looked like between Leonard and Penny. But at the same time, this has not really been a show where that kind of a serious conversation has been really... It still worked for me. And make of this what you will. I'm not a critic. I just know the show very well. But... I also know that it's true to life. I mean, sometimes the things that you want at one point in your life change as you evolve and as you grow and and as you drink too much and get pregnant and realize that maybe this was meant to be. I mean, look, when I was in my 30s, if you would ask me, I definitely wanted children. And now that I'm in my 40s, I'm completely content to be the cool aunt to give the twins back and say, you know what, I'm going to go home now. These are your children. I'm going to come over and spoil them and then I'm going to leave, you know, and I think that that's fair, you know, and without seeing that conversation This is a couple that is on solid ground. We saw Leonard kind of stand up to his mother and forge new ground in that relationship. To me, it worked with a progression of those two characters. You see them really kind of come into their own a little bit more over the last couple episodes of the series.
0: What I would say is that they actually did do the groundwork, though, oddly, on Sheldon earlier in the season, because there was the episode in which Sheldon comes to appreciate babysitting Howard's children, and he comes to see them as a little bit as guinea pigs in a scientific experiment, but he comes to... Appreciate what one would value in having children. And so he got to have that episode where he got to have that arc. I feel like the revelation of Penny's pregnancy could have come with four episodes to go, and there could have been an episode or two dedicated to showing the journey that Penny went on so that it didn't just feel as if the writers of the show, primarily men, came up with a resolution that felt like a happy ending to them without defending it. That would be all I would say. I'm not angry at it, but I understand the frustration that it feels like it left out something important for a character who we'd watched really grow and evolve.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I also asked Kaylee and Johnny Galecki if they would be open to doing a spin-off following their adventures in parenthood. Both really kind of said the same thing, that they were not interested in pursuing Another series like this again, but with the caveat that if Chuck Lorre were to call him and say, hey, this is something I want to do, they would both jump at the chance because neither are in the habit of saying no to Chuck Lorre.
0: Now, this is one where you were actually at the taping of the finale. What do you want to tell us about the emotion of that particular night and event.
2: I mean, you you already hit it. It was very emotional. I cried a couple of times, you know, seeing the experience and seeing some of the reveals. The episode had a, really, a lot of really fun callbacks for people who have been with the show the whole ride, like the elevator finally starting to work again. It was very sweet. And it takes you from the highest of highs. And then it punches you right in the gut with the emotion of like, oh, my God, she's pregnant. And then Sheldon's speech. I don't think there was a dry eye in the house. And, you know, one thing that's always been really impressive about going to a Big Bang Theory taping is Kaylee and Johnny without fail, every week, go out in the middle of the taping and go into the studio audience and speak directly to them and thank them for making the show what it is and for believing in the show so much and supporting it. And, you know, there were a lot of people that stood in line to get into that taping for more than 12 hours. People came from other states, from other countries. You know, well, look, a lot of times Big Bang Theory is kind of seen as a punching bag, but what it's done for the portrayal of women in science shouldn't be undervalued. And I think hearing some of the personal stories of those in attendance for the finale taping and how there was one person who said that she pursued a degree in science because of the show. I mean, what kind of an impact? Like, that to me is a legacy that you leave behind. And in addition to that, Big Bang closes up shop as TV's longest running multi-camera comedy in history. And it ended as TV's number one show. It would have gone on had Jim Parsons wanted to. And I asked Jim about walking away and he said, you know, he just kind of did a gut check and said, maybe it was time. 12 years is a long time. 279 episodes is a long time to be with one character.
0: And heaven knows he got enough hardware out of that. TCA Awards, Emmys, and the rest. So and a
2: producing deal that, that seeing him make things like special on Netflix, which if you haven't seen it, is excellent. I will be interested to see what a
0: lot of the people associated with the show go on to do. I think some of them have a lot of potential. I, for example, think that Kaylee Cuoco really does have a lot of potential as a comic actress. In my review, I compared her career arc to Christina Applegate uh, in the sense that Hollywood has very restrictive ideas of what it thinks it can do with attractive young blonde actresses. And they inevitably get put in certain corners. And if they're lucky, they get to show what they can do. And Christina Applegate, since married with children, has done a wonderful job of showing other things she can do. And Dead to Me right now on Netflix is probably her best showcase yet. I think Kaylee Cuoco has that kind of show in her if someone wants to give it to her someday.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And the larger question is how much she wants to go back into work, because this is, again, 12 seasons is a long time for her, too. And at the end, these guys are making north of a million dollars per episode, plus points on the back end. I mean, none of them need to work again at this point. But I think you'll see, like, Johnny Galecki is going to go back and do a couple episodes of the Connors next season. myama says she's got some things in the works. Melissa is an accomplished producer. She's got a couple of irons in the fire. And it's a very successful cast and simon helberg is a prolific producer too so it'll be a larger question to see how much these guys return on camera versus focusing on producing given their uh, big bang theory piles and piles and piles of cash so
0: and even though this is a show that didn't have necessarily the cool kid cred that the other finale we talked about this week had i do think it's important to acknowledge this was a meaningful show in contemporary television?
2: To say the least. And I mean, like we said, you know, this is a billion dollar franchise. It's got syndication all over, you know, on TBS. It's hard to get away from it. It's on five nights a week. It's a cash cow and, and it's not streaming anywhere yet. So we'll see what Warner Brothers decides to do with that, if it'll be exclusive to the Warner Media streaming platform or if they try to sell it to a third-party streamer and really cash in in that regard. But that's a very, very valuable asset and one that I think Warner Brothers is very, very sad to see go. It's a very big time of change for that studio.
0: Speaking of making use of established assets... Number four...
2: Batting cleanup, we interrupt our series finale conversation to talk about ABC's live-in-front-of-a-studio audience, Norman Lear's All in the Family and The Jeffersons. And to do so, we welcome a very special guest, ABC Entertainment President Carrie Burke.
0: What up, Carrie? Hi! Thank you so much for doing this on such short notice. We we appreciate you making the time.
3: Uh, we're talking about my favorite subject, so I'm, I was happy to make the time. Let's jump
2: right in. So your big 90-minute special drew 10 million total viewers and 1.7 in the demo— how happy are you with the returns?
3: Uh, over the moon. <laughs> there aren't enough adjectives to describe how happy we are today about this. But truly, it was a great moment for Jimmy, a great tribute to Norman. That cast was unparalleled. Um, and, and, and truly, I, I feel you know grateful to have been here to witness it. And I think a great moment for broadcast TV. So all in all, a win and exceeded our expectations in every way.
0: Well, I think a lot of us had questions about what those two brands actually meant to contemporary audiences, whether audiences actually today get anything when they hear All in the Family and Jeffersons. What do you attribute the interest that was apparently out there for this one to?
3: You know, honestly, we had the same questions and I I, I think the answer lies in in several things. One, I honestly think, just the the affection for and the power of of Jimmy's platform, and and Kimmel really getting behind this in such a significant way. Um, you know, not just on his show, but but all over our shows, and really. You know, using his megaphone to tell people that this is important. And even if you never saw these shows or you barely remember them or you haven't heard of Norman Lear, something of significance that that matters in our culture is going to be, um, you know, honored and celebrated and examined. And then I think the second piece of it is just the power of that cast, the the level of talent that that he brought to it that came to television was a kind of you know the the buzz I heard beforehand from a lot of people was I, I don't even really know what that was particularly young people but I can't wait to watch you know Jamie Fox and Woody Harrelson on primetime television. So I I think the power of just, you know, Jimmy's name and brand, the idea that that it was this live event that was going to be a sort of moment not to miss, and then the gathering of that cast were big magnets for the audience. From, from, From what I can glean you know, in my armchair research. (laughs) Yeah.
2: You've mentioned before that live is a big part of your strategy for ABC. More live hours of The Bachelor, more live hours of American Idol. Uh, You announced this week Nick Wallanda is going to do a live event this summer. But can you talk a little bit about the strategy here and if you're going to do another one of these? And if so, what sitcoms you're looking at going forward?
3: Yes, this is, you know. The kickoff to, I, I'm not going to say the kickoff, because I think we, you know, w- right when I got here, we started working on amplifying the live hours of our franchises that we already had in The Bachelor and American Idol. Then the the NFL draft was a, a big opportunity that we felt like we, again, sort of exceeded our expectations. when We leaned into the live and surprise nature of that. And then this, for us being, you know, the next leg and tentpole of that strategy. And and we'll end up coming hot on the heels of that. We're extremely excited about, and we're spending some time this morning talking about. All right, you know what comes after that? And there's big plans around CMA Fest, which is coming later this summer for some surprise elements that just can only happen in in live television. And then secondarily, yes, you know I, we will do as many of these with Jimmy as he has uh, the energy and the and the wherewithal. To pull off, because it is um, it's a it's a lot of heavy lifting from a producerial point of view, for someone who has a, a daily talk show. But we share his reverence for classic television and and live, and so the the plan has always been to take a take a minute and and see how we did with this one, and look to see what we can do, you know, in building this franchise for the future.
0: Well, if you got to choose, what sitcoms would you like to have them remake? <laughs>
3: Oh, my God. The list is long. I mean, personally, I would love to see Mary Tyler Moore. I would love to see the works of Jim Brooks, you know, Mary Tyler Moore, Bob Newhart. I would love to see more from Norman's canon. You know, certainly Good Times, Maud. There's so many to draw from. And, you know, <laughs> Golden Girls, certainly there's so many classics that I think this could be an endless or, or a very deep well for us. And I will say just going back to your earlier question about, you know, the why of of who this attracted. I realized that last night I had my <laughs> my 20-year-old daughter and her best friend, both of whom are media students in college. A couple days before, earlier this week they said, "Hey mom, there's this big thing happening on your network. <laughs> Can we come?" And I said absolutely, and they had we had so many conversations with them last night, and the, and the cast and the producers were really interested in talking to them about why they were so interested in it. Neither of them, you know, they knew about All in the Family and the Jeffersons. They, Oddly, they knew the theme song. They sang along to the, <laughs> the Jeffersons theme song. But they hadn't seen the originals, but they knew this was a moment of cultural relevance. They knew that you know something was happening that they wanted to be a part of. And so for me, it was so wonderful to experience the whole evening through their eyes and have them now be sort of evangelists for this kind of thing amongst their peer group. That that was really cool that this generation that may have never seen that. They're now going back and and watching those old episodes and talking about what what television was talking about in those days. And so 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 that for me personally was incredibly cool. And I think that was kind of happening around around the country.
2: Yeah. Given the the returns that you've seen on this one and and obviously the, the wealth of sitcoms to explore is is deep. Is your goal to do this annually once you kind of figure out what the next thing is? Is this something that you want to do every May to close out the TV season? You know, what? we
3: have not gotten that specific yet, but ideally, yes, if not more. I mean, truly, as you know, as. I certainly wouldn't want to overdo it. I think it's a part of its attraction is that it's, it, you know, it's special. And, and, you know, to be able to pull together that caliber of talent is, you know, can't happen regularly. But I think at the very least to have this be something that we're, we're looking at as an annual event would be ideal.
0: Well, could you speak at all to what the actual commitment was from the cast in terms of time, just like how, how much they had to put into it? Because obviously the caliber of people you got has to be at least somewhat regulated by how much of their schedule they have to turn over to this.
3: Yes, they rehearsed for about a week. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that amazing? I mean, they. I think they just they did their first table read. We were still at the upfront. It was last week. When was the upfront? My board <laughs> That's how
2: we feel too.
3: I honestly think it was Wednesday was their table read.
0: And we can't have you on without asking about this. What's happening with Whiskey Cavalier? <laughs> <laughs>
3: Uh, we were joking this morning that with Jimmy Kimmel that it was all an elaborate plan to to give whiskey cavalier a big finale lead in the work that was done last night you know i, I i've said before I, that that was a heartbreaking decision and one that has has been a bit haunting you know and after the fact just because we love the show so much and the, and the people that produce the show are are like family you know to us in many ways i go back to scrubs with bill lawrence and so, you know, I think that we are, are just taking a hard look at if there's any way to bring that show back in, in a way in which it could actually have a, a chance to succeed. And if not, you know, we will we will let it rest. But we are taking another uh, quick look just based on, the you know, our affection for the team and the show as to whether or not it, there could be any place where it could it could thrive on the schedule. And And we're going to make that decision this week.
2: Well, Carrie, that's it. All the questions we have. Thank you so much for for taking some time out to talk all things ABC with us. It's always a pleasure getting a chat. You too, guys.
0: Number five.
2: As always, we wrap things up with our weekly Critics Corner segment. Dan, it's Memorial Day weekend, and the premieres are a bit light. Uh, Netflix launches Renee Zellweger anthology What If? Sundance bows its adaptation of The Name of the Rose. Season two of She's Gotta Have It debuts on Netflix. Vita returns for a sophomore season on Stars, And Nat Geo debuts The Hot Zone. What you got?
0: It's definitely a slow Weekend slash week for TV releases. Not exactly sure why that is, especially given that at the end of next week, and we'll talk about this in next week's Critics Corner. You got a couple big things with when they see us and with the Deadwood movie on HBO, because next Friday, of course, not this Friday, is the big pre Emmy cutoff deadline. So for some reason, though, this week is a little bit slower. They're still good things to watch. Uh, I would probably recommend the last two things you just listed. I think Vita on Stars is a show that premiered last May a little bit quietly. I think it probably could have gotten more critical discussion and general adulation because I think it's a very good show. Uh, Creator Tanya Siracho has done a very good job of looking at an East Los Angeles neighborhood with all of its Language and sexual diversity. Uh, The show has a very basic premise. Two sisters return to Boyle Heights for their mother's funeral and discover secrets and find themselves. Discussing whether or not they want to attempt to run the rundown bar that she left behind. The two leading actresses, uh, Melissa Barrera and Michelle Prada, are both really wonderful. I, I think they both get better with each episode. The first season was only six episodes. The second season is only 10. The episodes tend to be between 30 and 32 minutes. So it's a really fast show to watch. You can catch up on it in a hurry. It's a distinctive show with a lot of things on its mind. It's a sexy show. It's an emotional show. It's occasionally funny, though I wouldn't call it a comedy. But yeah, I think I think a lot of people would like it. Again, not really a show for the whole family. It Really has a lot of nudity and a lot of uh, screwing. So, you know, don't don't think you're going to sit on an airplane and watch this one on your laptop unless you want to get really, really uncomfortable, especially
2: stars. So you kind of know what to exactly
0: exactly. It's as as my friend and colleague Alan Sepinwall observed when he watched the opening 20 seconds of the season two premiere. Yeah, this is definitely a stars show. It is. Speaking of shows that get to their point in a hurry, National Geographic's Hot Zone has somebody barfing up a large... um, (laughs) You cannot see Leslie's face, but she's making a face. A large uh, barf bag of... Blood, basically, on an airplane in uh, 1980-something Africa. And that's where the show goes. They make sure that someone is bleeding out within the first 10 minutes. It is a show that will disturb you in many of the same ways that the Richard Preston book did when it came out 20 years ago. I think it is a a very fast-paced sort of summer beach read of a TV show, a little bit like the book was, as opposed to something more substantive like... HBO's Chernobyl, which I think does a lot of the same things, but really gets a lot deeper under your skin and makes it hit home in a, in a different, more harrowing way. I think Chernobyl is a great show. I think that Hot Zone is a fun show that will disturb you and gross you out and that you definitely don't want to watch while eating. So, uh, and, and Leslie has not changed the face that she's made. This incidentally is exactly why you want to come to the live TV's top five on June <laughs> 6th at ATX TV Festival in Austin, because you're just missing out on all of Leslie's faces if you're not seeing us live. So hopefully those of you who are in Austin for ATX Fest will come and see us live because that's what you should be watching that week.
2: Well, that's it for us this week. We'll be back next week. And until then, be sure to check out Josh Wiggler's series regular podcast and Scott Feinberg's always excellent awards chatter. And until then, be sure to subscribe to TV's Top 5 on your various podcast platforms.
0: And as I like to say, if you like us, you should definitely rate the podcast. If you really like us, you should review us. Talk to us on Twitter, etc. If you have questions, we'll get back to a mailbag segment at some point. Our email address is TV's Top 5 at THR.com. Send us emails. We like to hear from you. And with that,
2: until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan.